The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome everyone to So Very Wrong About Games. It is a podcast about board games and what we think about them. I'm here with my great friend Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Really good. I'm actually getting excited because we have a convention coming up in Vancouver, which is far away for us, even though it's in the same country. It's where they keep the dim sum and the cheap sushi. That's right. Canada is a very large country and it's on the very far side of this country. Admare usque admare. There you go. And... I was, you know, have been so long against conventions lately, but I am, things have changed, so it's going to be all gaming all the time at this convention, so I am getting geared up. I have a small thing maybe planned, if a certain thing fulfills in time, I'm going to do a little, going to arrange a game maybe, we'll see what happens, but anyway, let's get moving. This is a podcast about board games, we're going to talk about uh, the game we reviewed last year, we're going to talk about the games we played this week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we have a topic this week, which is we're going to talk about tableau builders. The other thing I was thinking about, Mark, is that we're talking about these game mechanics, right? We talk about uh, deck builders, and now we're talking about tableau builders. And when when looking into these game mechanics, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, what actually is. You know, there's a lot of dispute on, you know, what are tableau builders and what are deck builders. And which makes me glad that we're doing this, because now we're, like, setting the bar straight (laughs) of what they are, right? So now people will actually know... What do you mean that? Well, we we get to stipulate the taxonomy for the purposes of our own discussion, right? Well, I'm just saying we're obviously right, and everyone else is so very wrong. Taxonomies are very flexible. Look, I'm I'm pretty ironclad about most of my opinions. That's that's pretty clear. But I actually caused a, a, a bit of a problem in several philosophy seminars because I'm of the opinion that there's no such thing as natural kinds and that taxonomies are fundamentally accidental and exogenous to the structure of metaphysics. But... Right. So last year we reviewed Street Masters, our as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment of the Euros is Street Masters by Adam and Brady Sadler. The expansion Aftershock is in the United States of America, currently in some kind of container limbo somewhere, somewhere maybe, eventually it might be fulfilled anywhere. How do you think Street Masters has held up, Walker? Pretty good. I always enjoy playing every game. It's Big Hook, which I was thinking about just a few moments ago, was it's a co-op game. And lots of co-op games, like the, you know, everyone goes and then there's the evil guy turn or the mechanic turn. And they did a really great job in this where they broke it up. When it's your turn, you're going to draw an enemy and that's your little enemy that you got to take care of. And it's usually, you know, because it's a Street Master game, everyone's pretty well on equal level. Like you're all just punching each other out type thing. So, you know, you take your turn and then you control what, you know, whatever little enemy you're in charge of does his little thing. And then you go on from there. And I thought that was a great part of the game. I was very disappointed in the follow-up to Street Masters, namely Brook City. I was sufficiently disappointed that I didn't pledge for 
Alter Quest, which is the third game in the system, the sort of modular deck system that Adam and Brady Sadler completely invented and uh, derived absolutely no inspiration from Sentinels of the Multiverse whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I, part, part of me was disappointed because of how much enthusiasm I have for Street Masters, but I felt that Brook City and possibly by extension Alter Quest tried to stretch the system too far because there's a fair amount of upkeep in any cooperative game and Street Masters, I feel, is just at the, just at the edge of what I'm willing to consider for a game of that depth. And uh, Brook City just went way past that. And so just wasn't, wasn't eager to keep up with it. They did. They did the same sort of interesting mechanic where they, they left the enemies where they were. Like you didn't have to move them around. So they kept that part simple. But then that would sort of broke it down into just broke the game down into trying to get to different places, you know, to the movement segment, trying to get irk the most movement out of each turn. And that's what it sort of broke down to is trying to get around right. the map, right? And the spatial element of Street Masters, I thought was just about perfect. It wasn't irrelevant, but it wasn't a huge cumbersome de- deal. In Brook City, it was mostly about getting from point A to point B, as you say, and tracking modifiers and conditionals across five different text-laden iconless cards. And that part I did not enjoy in differentiating the different enemies. And look, I've been thinking about this, and you know, why is it that games like Street Masters have really, are really part of what I really enjoy playing, that's because I think in the competitive sphere, there aren't games that do that well. I've been complaining endlessly about how there's no real good competitive free-for-all fighty type games. All the good ones are co-op. And because I don't have any good competitive alternatives, I think that's one of the reasons why things like Street Masters, like Too Many Bones, of that ilk, are really what I find satisfying. Because all the good competitive fighting type games, whether it's a miniatures game or a grid-based game or whatever, are two-player only. So when it comes to multiplayer, co-op is pretty much it. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why I think Street Masters has held up so well. Agreed. And that's the game we reviewed last year, Street Masters, by... Adam and Brady Sadler. All right, now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I get to play Attribute. I haven't played Attribute in a couple of years. This is by Marcel-André Castesola-Merkel, who is one of my favorite designers of the sort of turn of the century. And he hasn't put out much lately, although apparently there is a, a, a re-theming of Attica that is going to hit stateside in the next few months or so. And Attribute was, before Codenames, head, heads and shoulders above every other word game out there especially since the primary competitor to Attribute is Apples to Apples, which, as a social experience, is fine, not too much of a game. And the less said about Cards Against Humanity, the better. Attribute is really engaging and really fun. It's got a real-time element to it where you're all trying to grab words. I won't go into the rule, uh, too much into the rules, but suffice to say, it takes the some of the elements that people disliked about Apples to Apples and turned them on their head. There's no one judge. Everyone is a judge. You don't, you're not fixed to topics based on cards. You get to pick whatever topic you want with as many words as you like. And as a result, some of those tricky things that you have in the co-op versions or the team-based versions, like code names, like just one, what's allowed, what's not allowed, are completely loosened. You get to stipulate whatever you want to be the topic and attribute. You then just have these hands of adjectives that you either try to play that match the topic or don't match the topic based on what you randomly pulled that round. It's a lot of fun. It's super portable. It's adorable. It's got a whole bunch of sheep. People find the scoring elements sometimes a little bit confusing. Even gamers sometimes do, but I, I, I quite like them. And honestly, I was reminded about how I always appreciated attribute above and beyond every other word game out there. And I would say I even prefer it to Codenames. Now, Codenames is great for raucous fun with teams and with people who aren't necessarily gamers. But 
attribute is just wonderful and has similar moments of laughter and pain and creativity and delight. And everybody gets to be the, the, the code giver, which again, we recognize is one of the problems of code names that the whole team structure can be a little bit limiting. But Attribute's been out of print for a while, but you might be able to track down a copy. I'm a huge fan of Attribute. It has my highest possible recommendation. Also got to play Pox Palmer's second edition again. This is after the uh, after Swag became a true crime podcast for a couple of weeks. People used their Luminol to track down the it, copy th- of Pax Palmer. This has seen some miles, this this particular copy of Pax Palmer. It is well-traveled. Well, I mean, most board games are because most of them are manufactured in China. So at that point, the fact that it went to New England, got misplaced for a while, and came back to us is not a huge deal. But anyhow... <laughs> We should it, make a movie, like one of those pet lost movies, and you know, kind of the board game off in the distance, and then tears slowly rolls down your eye, and then you know, you get back. Okay, go ahead. That sounds like the worst movie ever. <laughs> and I thought I was in the worst movie ever made. It no, it's bizarre. Like oh, those trailers for those awful animal movies. I know. Oh dear. I know. Okay, okay. Box Bomber Second Edition. I'm I'm having some difficulty coming to terms with my many feelings and thoughts about Pax Palmer. I have many feels, Walker. I don't think it's nearly as good as Pax Renaissance. And part of me wonders, what would I think of it if I didn't have Pax Renaissance, if I hadn't played Pax to Renaissance? With? Yeah, because it's easily twice as long, and it's twice as static. There's less flexibility in Pax Palmer. You get locked into positions a little bit more. Yeah, there's some flexibility about switching allegiance and so forth, but the way your tableau develops, and more on that later when we talk about tableau builders, is a little bit more fixed, a little bit less flexible, a little bit it gives you a little bit less ability to roll with the punches and try to turn on a dime than it wants to, and there's a certain amount of investment fallacy that, that gets stuck in there anyway. I enjoy it. I think Pox Palmer is, is an excellent design. And the second edition is much, much less chaotic. But I, I wonder if in the process of improving it by making it less chaotic, it has lost some of the flexibility that I really want out of a game, particularly a game of that length. And as a result, both games that we've that I've played at Pox Palmer second edition have had overtures of kingmaking. No outright kingmaking, but the situations were always very close at hand. Made me a little bit nervous. So it's a gorgeous production, and I'm very, very keen to explore the system further. But suffice to say, at this particular juncture, I'm beginning to think that the extra complexity and the extra chaos of Pax Renaissance is worth it, because at the extended playing time and less flexibility, Pax Palmer feels a lot more staid, a lot less dynamic. Uh, So more to follow, but that's where I'm currently sitting with Pax Palmer 2nd Edition. All right, Mark and I got to play a game called Land, Air, and Sea by Arcane Wonders. Actually, no, it's air, land, and sea. Sorry, air, land, and sea. Land, air, and sea, you might be thinking of in terms of the heroes of land, air, and sea, the aggressively mediocre, to say the least, game by Gamelin Games, but this is air, land, and sea. Air, land, and sea. So many people will probably know a game called Smash Up and or another game called Blood Bowl, the card game. Or Battle Line. Or Battle Line. There's main objectives in the middle and people are playing cards on either side and trying to get a higher number than the opponent. The couple hooks in la- in air, land, and sea are you'll get a hand of air, land, and sea cards. Imagine. And you can only play those cards in those uh, arenas. And the main mechanism is pretty well flipping over cards, right? On the backs of all the cards is strength two, and on the fronts there's, you know, a varied amount of strength. And when it's your turn, you can either play some face down for the two strength or face up for whatever the printed strength is, plus an ability of some kind. And the abilities, like I said, are probably flipping other cards face down or even maybe even moving lanes, right? But that's that's the gist of it. Long story short, I really feel that Smash Up 
in particular and the Blood Bowl card game just last too long for for what it gives you, right? Because it always just breaks down to, you know, I'm trying to get more in this in this form than you. And it just leads to doing the same thing over and over again and, and gets tedious very quickly, where this is very straightforward. It's just a hand of 18. It's a deck of 18 cards. There's six air, you know, six of each. You'll, you'll get to know the cards very quickly. There'll be no surprising like there is in these other games where it's like, oh, you know, smash up. There's like 50 different factions. You have no idea what's going to come at you. So you have a little bit of planning ahead and the games don't last that long. And I, th- I really think it hit what that mechanism can do very well. So we got this as a review copy. One of the listeners asked if we had had any impressions of it and the designer reached out and sent us a copy and i really agree i think it has again a level of dynamism that some of those other games don't have one thing that you neglected to mention this this to me is i think one of my favorite elements of of the airland and sea is you can call a fight early you can give up early and as a consequence you lose the battle but you don't lose as many points if you go the distance the winner gets six points which is half of what you need to win but if you give up early you might only be giving up two or three and you can look at your cards look at the board and make that calculated risk that's one of those elements that I think makes Blue Moon really shine, and Blue Moon is my second favorite game of all time. And it's really quick. The card powers are interesting, and the way they play off each other is really cool. The rules explanation takes about five hot minutes, and none of the cards you really need to worry about. There are no huge take-that elements that you, where you figure, well, I really need to know that at the outset, with the possible exception of one, the blockade, but anyway... And I was really, really impressed at how uh, pleasant it was and how fun it was and the different combinations that you can get based on looking at the board and your hands. It's one of those games where it's really the special powers and making them calibrate well. The last time I was this impressed by such a small deck of cards was when I played R or Brave Rats, where really it's about a perfectly calibrated set of powers that makes the game sing despite being super, super simple and super, super quick. I really, really liked Airland and Sea, and I'm looking forward to playing it some more. Agreed. Played Shadows of Malice. Shadows of Malice is by Jim Felly of Devious Weasel Games, and Jim Felly is one of my favorite designers. He designed Doer the Lesser Houses and Bemused. Those are the two Jim Felly games that I like. And then there are all the other Jim Felly games that I respect and admire, but do not enjoy playing. And I say this despite the fact that I'm going to buy every game that Jim Felly puts out for the rest of his career, because everything he produces is such an iconoclastic work of genius and inspiration. Sometimes I don't want to, want, to, want to play it very much afterwards, but it's always fascinating. And Shadows of Malice recently came out with a second printing. So there was some minor cleanups and uh, minor fiddling around the edges, but the core, core of the game is the same. And honestly, it's one of those games that I think is mostly review-proof. Because I think to get a sense of what Shadows of Malice is all about, I shouldn't say, tell you what happened in my game, at least in the early parts without going into all of the mythology surrounding the game, of which there is a lot, despite the fact that it doesn't have any Tolkien-esque overtones, which is one of the things that I always respect about Jim Felly's settings. They're always His, his next game is about cosmic immortal frogs, so hey, that, that just gives you a sense. So in Shadows of Malice, you play these avatars of light that can be of any form or shape that you really want to, and you're encouraged in the rulebook and, and throughout the entire setting to really invest it with as much narrative as, as you can, to get a sense of who or what these things are. And the creatures you ge- you encounter are randomly generated, but randomly generated in a way that, in- get- again, encourages you to feed in your imagination about what it is you're fighting. You know, some sort of corrupted raccoon that goes for the neck, or some sort of va- a vampiric fish that feeds off of your life energy. Anyhow, 
One of my avatars, I was playing a, a two-avatar game, had this ability to transmit energy long distances and had this uh, set of items that increased movement capability. And so I imagined this avatar as sort of constantly phasing in and out of existence, blipping here and there, shifting a few feet at a time, never really in one place at any given time, a, a kind of a vaguely humanoid, constantly in-phase entity. I had it do a move action, and I rolled doubles. And when you roll doubles, you get to pull from an event deck. Because you roll for movement in Shadows of Malice. Did I mention that? And what I pulled was that this this entity, your avatar, has gotten unmoored from time. And I'm like, this is beautiful. I've already conceptualized this entity as a a constantly shifting, far-traveling entity. That that it would be unmoored from time makes perfect sense to me. And the, the effect of the card, however is that you roll a die at the start of your turn, and you have a 50% chance of skipping your turn. Until such time as the card gets rid of. And this is... Uh, it can be modified by, by by items, but there's nothing you can do after you get the card to modify it. It's just a flat... You're gonna... You have a 50% chance of missing your turn unless you get rid of the card. And so I'm like, okay... All right, this is what's happening. And then shortly thereafter, after I got rid of the card by rolling well enough, I skipped uh, two turns, as it were, but I was playing solo with another avatar, so it wasn't the, wasn't a huge deal in that context. And then I had to... I was in a position whereby this entity had to basically render itself diffuse and then reform itself, reconcentrate its powers. And then it became a time walker. And it's like, this is perfect. The narrative was just perfect. And I loved it. And the flavor and the texture was marvelous. And I was not enjoying the gameplay. (laughs) It's just, again... I think that description of what was going on and what I was investing in the game will tell you everything you need to know about Shadows of Malice. I absolutely love watching Jim Felly produce games. Sometimes I love playing the games too and sometimes not. So that was my recent experience with Shadows of Malice. Played a game that's getting a little bit of buzz. It is called Undaunted Normandy. There was a game by AEG called War Chest. These guys got together and made a World War II game that also really sings really well it's it you have to you set up all these tiles and you're moving these tokens around and you're making this really interesting deck there's so many mechanisms in this game that work really well that it's hard to talk about them all mark and just this quick little (laughs) thing the scenario will tell you how many cards for each unit you're going to put in your deck and then you shuffle them up and you draw a hand of three cards and there could be these fog of war cards that do nothing or you could get a commander that let you that they'll let you increase the you know the size of your deck so you can activate these units more but that is the best hook that i enjoyed about this game is that the hit points for these tokens for these units that you're moving around are the cards in the deck so if the unit takes a hit you first search your hand then the discard pile then the deck and you remove that card if at a certain time you're searching for this card and it doesn't have one then you have to remove the token and i thought that was brilliant and there's all sorts of different you know, other mechanisms in this game. But other than that, I I really enjoyed playing it and I can't wait to see where they go with this game. Just to elaborate a little bit on this notion of of taking hits, because I, I really like how it feeds in with the initiative system. At the top of every round, you draw four cards and you pick one card to bid for initiative and better cards have higher values and worse cards have lower values. So you might think, well, you know, sock away the card that that's useless, but then you're probably going to lose the initiative bid. But if you get hit and you have a unit card in your hand and you're going second, that card's gone. 
And that part was wonderful. I loved how those two elements dovetailed with each other very, very, very nicely and really made you think about how to use your hand because that's one of the common critiques against deck builders. You just build your deck and buying the cards is the interesting thing. Well, here in Undaunted Normandy, to buy cards, you just play a leader card and it says buy a certain number of cards and that's it. Sometimes you don't want that. And sometimes you have to do it. And those trade-offs were great in addition to the initiative system. I was a little disappointed in the theming. Quite frankly, the, the theming was sufficiently abstract that I, I, I might have actually preferred some sort of generic sci-fi or fantasy type thing or something else because I'm a little bit tired of World War II as a theme, broadly speaking. I'm also really tired of Normandy having been represented as the great struggle of the Americans against the Germans. Now, I respect the fact that the Americans were in all five of the Normandy beaches. Oh, wait, no, they weren't. Oh, wait, who are those other people? Wait, they were only in two of the five beaches? That's insane! That must be, I'm looking this up, this must be a lie. Someone must have edited Wikipedia. I could have sworn there were at least four of the five Normandy beaches. But uh, apparently, it was there were there were there were Brit- British people there and Scandinavians? Wait, how do you say this word? Anyhow, I've just encountered a whole bunch of other games about the Western Front post Normandy, and it's always the same. First, it's the Americans versus the Germans. If that's really popular. Then we'll have a module with American paratroopers, and then that's really popular. You go to the Eastern Front, and you'll have the Russians versus the Germans. And then if that's really popular. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get the expansion with the British, and and maybe. The British module will let you play as some Canadians. Anyhow, I've been spoiled by Combat Commander. Combat Commander, as a as a, a rule system right from its inception, allowed you to play as so many different nationalities in World War II because it was a world war. Anyway, <laughs> setting all that aside, Walker's been very patient. Undaunted Normandy was very fun. I wanted to like War Chest, and there were lots of elements of War Chest that I liked, but I complained, as did many other people, about the end game. It was just this grindingly attritional, unsatisfying event. But Undaunted Normandy doesn't have the unsatisfying uh, royal coin that War Chest did, and it's scenario-based. It's about grabbing objectives and about being clever about with your resources about going and making these surgical strikes, which War Chest wanted to be, but I felt almost never really manifested. And so despite many of their similarities, I think that Undaunted Normandy is a tremendous step forward. I was very, very pleasantly uh, surprised, and I look forward to trying it some more. Can't wait to play it again. Another great part is we've already talked about deck builders where the purchasing is always a problem. You have to buy money to get money. It's it's pointless. The really cool part about this is use the commanders, but like all the other cards, all of the cards have multi-uses. They all have three to four different abilities, and you can only choose one. And that part of the game is amazing. That is Undaunted Normandy by Offspree Games. Played Infinity again. Just wanted to give a, a brief update on some of my evolving thoughts on miniatures games, specifically Infinity. One of the things that we didn't mention when talking about miniatures games is one of the key elements for me for long-term enjoyment of a system is how well the company manages the meta, how they manage to rebalance things and tinker with things. And Infinity does a really good job for the most part. The, the most recent round of rebalancings struck me as very, very weird. So I was rebuilding a list to play against uh, some locals, and I found that they basically gave a buff to a whole bunch of units that I felt didn't need the buff in the first place. The giant hulking metal death robots called Tags. Now they're better than they used to be, and I don't know. Maybe maybe in some international world tournaments, things are working differently, but in the, all the metas that I've been involved in, they didn't need the leg up. Mark, those miniatures are very expensive and make them a lot of money. <laughs> I, I'm not so that if they cynical. make them better, then I'm pe- not more people will buy them. It's just I will say that I've never really understood 
when I, I've always been reasonably successful with my own builds and my own intuitions about what constitutes a good army in Infinity. And when I hear other people talk about good Infinity builds, I do not understand what they're talking about. It makes me think that like we're playing entirely different games. And despite the fact that I played Infinity in four different cities and you know had a reasonably good sense of what the metas were there. Anyhow, this is in contrast to another Osprey Games product, which I'm looking forward to getting my hands on this week, which is to say Gaslands Refueled, because the balance changes in Gaslands made perfect sense to me you know get rid of rockets of course make buggies more expensive makes perfect sense modify miyazaki yeah that makes sense and uh so it's just strange that sometimes when i play a minis game i'm definitely in step with the meta and i understand why things are happening the way they are and then sometimes it's like we're talking entirely different languages anyhow but i had a great fun playing with some of the new toys in infinity new toys that i thought that my faction didn't need and were probably undeserved but uh you know i'll exploit them anyway i'm, I'm not going to be uh, a saint about it and that was infinity those were the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, this is uh, episode 85, so we have to tell people that we have a... We have a Patreon. And moving on, there is a game that some people enjoy called Root. And it's latest... <laughs> it's latest... No, but nobody in this basement, though. No, we hate it. No, <laughs> it is an amazing game, and its last Kickstarter was called Underworld. It introduced two new factions, and as an add-on to that kickstarter you could get this thing they called uh, uh like a solo expansion i'm not sure what they called it in the kickstarter but they're going to flesh it out to be a full expansion it's going to be called the root clockwork expansion it's going to add a whole bunch of automated modules so you sort of like group up against the game or you know the game's going to run a faction and you have to work you know against it and each other or however it's going to work just seems really interesting and i like to, i'm looking forward to see how that you know increases the gameplay on the topic of expansions, we talked, uh, well, I talked a little bit ago about a game called Donning the Purple, which definitely has one of the best names in board gaming. And I was pleased with some of the elements, but I really wish that it had capitalized a little bit more on the sort of governmental aspects about how it, it's about Caesar and the Senate and managing the air to Caesar and things like that. But I, I and all that stuff was great. I just felt that it was undercut rather significantly by how useless the Senate was and how strange the Senate mechanism was and how many take-that cards there were and how that seemed to be the primary driver of the game, the take-that cards. But they've got an expansion on Kickstarter called Votes and Virtue. And uh, having looked over the rules and the new, new setup and new mechanisms, I think this might be the expansion that makes this game for me because it introduces a new Senate phase where your senators vote on various proposals. And now suddenly it's more a function of how much influence can you garner? How much do you want to go the political route? And the interaction between Caesar and Caesar's heir is now much more interesting because the heir, if they want to, can make Caesar's life miserable by distracting Caesar and demanding a allowance and things like that. And I have to say that they've been very transparent. There's a print and play available, and I'm, I'm seriously considering, even before the Kickstarter is done, just printing out the materials and giving it a shot because it should be relatively easily prox proxyable. And they've, uh, they've also introduced a new role, who's a general, and if the general gets too famous, the general can unseat Caesar, which is absolutely historically plausible and really lends into the theme. I'm really excited about the possibility uh, of, th of this expansion. So go check it out. It's called Votes and Virtue, and it's an expansion for Donning the Purple. Other Kickstarter news, and this is this is one of those instances where I'm going to have to rely on the support of friends and listeners to remain strong. There's this game called Aeon Trespass Odyssey. 
And initially, I was completely uninterested because it's my first-time designers and a first-time publisher on Kickstarter. Okay. And then I see it's miniatures heavy. And then I see that it seems very, very, very similar to Kingdom Death Monster in a lot of ways. Now, some of this may just be cosmetic. Like, the board looks exactly like a Kingdom Death, Kingdom Death Monster board with just slightly different graphical flourishes. So I'm like, oh, okay, I have Kingdom Death Monster. Forget that. And I don't need another campaign game, whatever. Then I learned two things about it, one of which was slightly problematic and one of which is hugely problematic for me and for my resistance to the product. One of them is that it is Greek techno myth-making a la Lords of Hellas, right? Lords of Hellas is all about, like, what if it's what if we have advanced technology in the Greek myths? And I didn't know that that's exactly what I wanted, but it is exactly what I wanted. And so now I know that it's about ancient Greek myths, like mech pilots. I don't know if I can resist that, but, but maybe with all the rest of the stuff I can. And then I see, then I see the one thing that finally kills me. One of my favorite elements of Greek mythology are the Hecaton Kyras, the hundred-handed who were involved in the Tatanamaki. Anyway, I can talk about them for a while. They're, 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 they're kind of weird. The, there are minis of the Hecaton Kyrus in Antrespeth. I don't... So it's I, hitting all your buttons. It's, uh, it's, it's really trying. It's hitting all the wrong buttons, all the wrong reasons to... to, to <laughs> like, for someone in our position, anyway, to, to, to go get a board game. So, uh I'm going to have to probably read the rules and discover that it's awful. But if I... If, if, uh, I need to be strong. That's what I'm saying. That's my news item. My news item is I need to be strong in the face of the hundred-handed. There you go. One final thing. Cole Worley has announced that he is working on John Company's second edition. He's planning some, some rules tweaks. He says that at the moment, now, none of this is set in stone yet, that it looks like it's going to be very, very minor edits such that an upgrade kit is a very doable for owners of the previous edition. But the second edition, when and if it's published... Is going to be published under Whirligig Games. And if Pox Palmer's 2nd edition is any indication, they really know how to make a slick production. I don't know what, what he has in mind for components. Again, if it's even going to be published in that format. But it could be very, very nice. And one of the best benefits of getting a Cole Whirly game that is published by Cole Whirly, as opposed to a Cole Whirly game that is published by Phil Eklund, is you're not going to have a racist essay in the back. So when and if there's a John Company 2nd edition, I might pony up and get that one too. That's always a plus. Absolutely. And that's the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to the topic this week, which is Tableau Builders. And so, just in case you weren't exactly sure what Tableau Builders were, we're about to tell you. (laughs) What's a Tableau Builder to you, Walker? Tableau Builder, to me, would be something that I have my own unique game space in front of me where I'm either placing cards or tokens or or moving tokens off a map, revealing new abilities that that influence gameplay and that is unique to me for you know for a moment. Because someone could do the exact same thing or, you know, play the exact same tile, but there's a chance that my experience is going to be completely different than everybody else's. So from my perspective, just off the top of my head, and I'm very, I'd be very interested to hear if you have any counterexamples. For me, it's exclusively cards. I, I can't really think of a tableau builder that's like token-driven or mat-driven or something like that. Do you have any examples of... I, I would say Hansa Tatanka is a tableau builder. And, and Scythe is also a tableau builder, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't call them that, but that's fine. We can coexist in this, uh, in this, in this little friction. I rem- you have your own little area and you're manipulating your abilities. I get, you know, I mean, it could, it could be, you know, you could replace it with cards, but they're not cards. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, you're moving tokens around and I, th- I think it's the same thing. Part of it for me is that you, in the context of Scythe or Hansa Tonica, 
you are given this placard at the start of the game, and it's what sets the parameters of what you're able to do. Whereas in most, if not all, Tableau Builders, you are literally building it up from sometimes very little, sometimes a little bit more. And so there's there's a lot more degree of latitude. Now, not this is not necessarily, in, strictly speaking, in the context of player asymmetry, but it's certainly in the case of variety of things that might happen. Whereas the, you know, your development horizons in Hansa Teutonica are always going to look the same. And your development horizons inside, although they're not going to look the same from player to player, are very much determined by what you're given at the top of the, at the, top of the game. But anyway. Well, let's just switch to something else. Have, sure. Have you ever played Clash of Cultures? I have. Right? So it's almost exactly the same. And it has a huge... A, a much bigger choice of you know where you're going to put your cubes, what, you know what's what different sieves you're going to choose, and therefore, and it's not cards as cards as well. So, and that I would consider it a tableau builder as well. That's an interesting example. I, so, I remember back when I first read Tableau in the context of a board game, and that, that was actually in the context of Race of the Galaxy, and I thought it was I was living in America at the time. And despite the fact that I have been accused of being overly fond of French, I thought it was hopelessly pretentious. I'm, I'm going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> it was like about four or five years ago, you know, and, and, and they would use this against me because they know I'd roll my eyes every time. Someone, and you place that in your tableau and they'd all look at me and say, huh? Ah, ah? I, like, I, was, I was so self-conscious about using the term tableau in a strictly, you know, unilingual English American environment that I would just sort of make a sort of self-deprecating flourish when I was saying it. It's like, okay, so here in Race to the Galaxy, we're going to be playing cards out to our tableau. And, <laughs> but now it's just the thing. It and is. This, this is part and parcel of my general observation about the way the, the overall hobbyist market is moving. You know, I, I think about the, the years from, you know, about 95 to 2005, where auctions were sort of the default generic bland Euro experience, which is not to say that there are not some amazing auction games that were put out during that period, but there are also a whole lot of just dross of uninspired and uninspiring stuff. And it's just auctions were just the default way to let stuff enter the system. Then it was worker placement for a while. You know, I figure about all the stuff following Agricola and, uh, you know, maybe deck builders too, to a certain extent, a whole lot of generic and inspired ones of those. Now it's tableau building. You know, if you, th- if, if you would ask me what a sort of hyper generic, uninspired core element of a Euro game to be now would be, it would probably either be tableau building, maybe roll and rights, but we'll see how that breaks. Which is a shame, because tableau building can really be interesting, but often it's not. And I make no reference whatsoever to the fact that Wingspan just won the DSP, the Deutsche Spielpress, because, again, under the aegis of needing to have strength, I'm going to try not to complain too much about Wingspan while talking about tableau builders. <laughs> All right, so I'll, I have, much like the last time we did this, I have a whole bunch of points of why tableau builders are awesome and or bad, and then I have a whole bunch of games that we can talk about as well, probably way too many games. Suck it to me, Walker. So let's move on. So combos. We talked about combos before. In Tableau Builders, you get to to build all these different combos up, which will make, which goes right into my next point, which is going to make every game you play uh, much different. Absolutely. The amount of variety you can get out of Tableau Builders can really be striking, even when uh, one game that I played recently without talking about it is Res Arcana, the, the Tom Lehman's most recent Tableau Builder, because Tom Lehman, he loves him some Tableau Builders, and I think he does it really, really, really well. And in Res Arcana, you have an eight-card deck, and you might figure, oh, there's not really much to be done about that. But the amount of leverage you're able to get with a scant eight cards, I know you don't like the game, but you're wrong, is truly astounding. And 
the ability to get combos off of two cards about how you can get an entire combo going just with a small amount of input from cards. Yeah, you can really do a lot in a good Tableau Builder. However, this feeds into what I think is one of the biggest shortcomings of a lot of Tableau Builders, which is a lot of them are basically multiplayer solitaire. Because we've all got our own Tableaus, right? And we're all trying to get our own combo going. And my combo is reliant on my cards, and your combo is reliant on your cards. And sometimes those two Tableaus never interact with each other. And so you get a lot of the really, really, as you would call it, head-down Tableau Builders where there's no interaction whatsoever. Like things like Wingspan, things like Everdell. Everdell, in order to get uh, player interaction, had to you know latch on the worker placement. And even worker placement's not particularly player interactive at the best of times. And, you know, people can disagree about how much player interaction there is in Terraforming Mars, but we both know that the answer is very little. So that that is often the downside of... True. I have low player interaction, but we can flip, go into 51st State, which does a great job of of making the player interaction part of the game and almost an essential part of the game. I, I wouldn't go that far, quite frankly. I think that, that uh, 51st State d- does a good job of emphasizing player interaction where possible. You don't get to a particularly player interactive game as a consequence. It's I think it's just enough. Well, Through- some people might get runaway cards at the beginning or get very lucky and get some key cards, and that, and that forces the player interaction immediately. Yes, However, the times when you absolutely have to be conscious of what all your opponents are doing are not that frequent in the context of 51st State Masterset. uh, Contrast that with some of the other Tableau Builders that are much more player interactive. Oh, and by the way, I'd just like to stress, my favorite Tableau Builder, Race for the Galaxy, is also very multiplayer solitaire. You know, the points of interaction are there, but not really central to a lot of the game. Some of my favorite... Uh, uh, tableau builders with tons of interaction are things like innovation, Carl Chuddock's innovation, where every card effect you trigger, you have to be very conscious of how it is affecting every other player at the game, what with the sharing and the demand effects. And of course, Bax Renaissance, which is all about going head to head with everybody and competing over scarce resources and map presence. And so it is possible, a lot of it depends on what the tableau is driving. But it can go all the way from incredibly multiplayer solitaire to very interactive. What I have down here is no wasted turns. Like in lots of games, you have to like, you know, you have to, oh, I got to get resources this turn or I got to reset this turn or, you know, I can't really do anything this turn because I'm blocked in or whatever. I, I When I was going through the list of the Tableau Builders, that really doesn't happen. There's always something you can do. There's always a way you can drive your engine a different way or make your engine better. There always seems to be more more choice every turn in Tableau Builders, in my experience. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And come to think of it, you're you're right. Generally speaking, if you have a wasted turn, it's because you've put yourself into a corner or something. Like I'm thinking of those times in Tableau Builders where I, I basically had to do something that felt inefficient. And that's mostly because I was just making a mistake. And if I'd just been a little bit more open-minded about what was available to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Also makes your experience much different than the other players. So you really feel, it, you know, you can say, well, it makes you feel like you're playing your own game. But not really. You're all playing the same game, but like my experience is slightly different. You know, I'm doing a little bit of different thing. You know, I'm, ex- you know, I'm exploring this part of the game. You know, I'm manipulating my pieces slightly differently. And sometimes that can be really fun. If the cards are well done, both mechanically and thematically, you get an immediate sense of ownership, right? You, you get an immediate sense that this is my card. I did something to either get it or play it because there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in Tableau Builders about how cards come into your hand, how they hit the table, things like that. But you can feel a sense of ownership right from turn one because this is what I've got. This is me. This is mine. 
And even when you're having your teeth kicked in by your opponents, either because they're outscoring you or because they're pummeling you, generally speaking, you have at least that to fall back on. All right, I should put these two points together. So you're watching something, you're, you're watching your play area grow. So like you're building a city like in Keyflower or, or your, you know, your, your things are slowly growing in front of you. And that leads to one of my other points is the fact that it slowly teaches you the game in a lot of these in a lot of these games right because it slowly introduces new rules slowly introduces the complexity of the game the game slowly grows over time so it makes it a little easier to introduce new rules or you know get you into the game instead of throwing everything at you all at once hmm i actually find a lot of tableau builders very 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 hard to teach precisely because although your tableau grows organically and slowly you still have to have a sense of what all the cards do because you typically have a hand or a display of some kind. You need to pick which ones you want to do. It's true. A lot of the stuff is hidden, so you have no idea what's coming up, so you don't know how, where to go. But, I mean, right. that's almost, you know, you know, even if you try to teach it, there's no way you're going to go over every card anyway type thing. I don't know. Some people want that. You, you and could, that, but and I'm just saying. And that's my default teaching style. Now, maybe this is a mark problem, not a game problem. But even just explaining to people, there was a period of many years where every month I had to explain Race for the Galaxy to a new, new group of people. And Race for the Galaxy is an unpleasant game to teach. It's not just hard, but it's just, it's it's difficult. And different players have different sets of expectations. Some people are perfectly happy being given a player aid and saying, here's what the iconography means. Go and figure it out by yourself. And then other people are like, no, no, no. I want you to explain to me in detail how each and every card works from my initial hand of seven or what, or what have you. And there's no right or right or wrong way to learn a game. And I've taught enough people Race for the Galaxy to tell you that, yeah, what you do with your tableau starts out small and grows, but the, the, they are going to want to know what all those cards mean. And I'm not sure I'm in a position to tell them that's the wrong way to do it. Uh, same problem exists with Pax Renaissance. So, All right, my next point usually leads to multiple paths of victory. Because you're building this little engine, and because okay, this you know this part of my engine is getting rubber ducks, this part's getting tires, and you know all of these tires and rubber ducks and and anvils, you know, are all going to be give me different uh, point values at the end. So there's all these different ways you can get victory points, and that's another reason why I love uh, tableau builders. Okay, I have a very serious question. Yes, what is this game, and why haven't you taught it to me? <laughs> it sounds like a fabulous, fabulous design. <laughs> called tune the role-playing game the board game yeah even games where the scoring is relatively straightforward like 51st date master set right the scoring is very transparently obvious you play a card and it says activate it to get a couple points by turning out resources and at the end of the game you get a point for every building you have and that's it that's it that's all or games that are very, very cumbersome in their victory conditions, like, for example, Innovation. Innovation's victory conditions can get very weird. Uh, that's partially by design. Or Pax Renaissance, again, where the victory conditions can get bizarre. Or even something in the middle, like Race for the Galaxy, where there's a number of different fundamental strategies about how to get points. Nonetheless, the very structure, regardless of how complicated or convoluted your, your scoring system is, your, that additional liberty and freedom you get by virtue of it being card-driven lets you feel like you're, you're playing a different victory condition regardless. And yeah, the, 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 the flexibility that you get to leverage is huge. All right. So a negative point is sometimes it leads to over-manipulation of resources or too many types of resources. So what I'm saying is like, you know, you know, you get 50 of these things and you cash them in and you're, you're moving all this stuff around. 
like it reminds me of this game called I think it's called Bullies in Space, where you're creating this engine where you have to trade all these resources with all these other alien no, races. No. And and you're as long as you're the loudest at the table or you bully the other players into giving you what they want and then you're trading all these stuff around and this turns into that and these big pieces turn into fifty little pieces and you're manipulating all this plastic around. You know, it's funny because you were you were saying those things. I tuned out for a while. I think I entered a fugue state where I was just uh, contemplating the second movement of tools calling voices, but it, it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually thinking about sidereal confluence while you were complaining about turning A into B into C into D. Because that's one of the things that I don't like about terraforming, uh, terraforming Mars. It's also sometimes what I don't really like about Through the Ages. I like Through the Ages by Vlada Kavadal. And it is arguably in some ways a tableau builder. But for me, Through the Ages is just at the edge of what I'm willing to accept for convolution in terms of, well, first you have to spend actions to get a card, and you have to pay this resource to put the card on, and then you have to pay a different resource to put a worker on the card, or a different resource entirely to get the worker in the first place, to then pay the resource to get the worker on the card, and then you can start pumping this thing for whatever. And, I, I again, I enjoy Through the Ages, but that's just at the limit of what I have. What I vastly prefer is, again, something like Race for the Galaxy, because Race for the Galaxy has the same sort of very, very pointed decisions about what it is that you want to put out, and the opportunity costs are leveraged very simply in terms of paying cards. And in as much as you are paying cards, you are foregoing the opportunity to ever play them, to put them in your tableau. And so you can get the same effect through a vastly simpler, simpler procedure. Now, the reason why your slander against serial confluence is completely inappropriate is because the primary driver of the game is that deal-making, is that negotiation. I, I don't think I'd call it a tableau builder, even though all your different engines are cards that you can acquire. And uh, here's something that, that people need to understand about Michael Walker with respect to why he sometimes doesn't enjoy games like Serial Confluence or social deduction games or large party games involving deal-making or things like that. That's because this is how Walker plays those games. Are you ready for my impression, Walker, of you playing those games? You shouldn't have dead air, Mark. That's precisely it. The joke was going to be I was going to introduce dead air because you sit in the back and sometimes I'm like, Walker, do you want to trade these cubes? And I'm like, no, no, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just see what happens. You just choose not to play. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. One of my critiques about some tableau builders is that they can get overlong. If you get too enamored with the sort of supply chain that you're building for yourself, Again, if you want to turn A into B and B into C and C into D and D into points, then they can just get a little bit too cumbersome. And then you're in the, the, the realm of some of the more staid, unpleasant engine builders where it's more about the process than any actual competition between the players. And especially since, again, I've seen compelling done in 15 minutes with a scant deck of eight cards. I don't need the three-hour experience of decks upon decks upon decks and 17 different kinds of resources. So That's what leads into the, my last thing here that sort of just came up in my head. A lot of these tableau builders, like Gaia Project, like uh, Terra Mystica, like... Again, I, I don't... I like anyway. a lot of these games... It all leads down to if you're if you start to get your engine really humming, it's one of these games where you're 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 pumping out actions, and sometimes you get way more actions than other people. It's like you're pumping this engine until you run out of resources, and then the turn resets. A lot of the games are like that, and then and then suddenly your turns are taking way longer than other players' turns, and it can lead to you know. There's an art to creating the pacing of a game, and I think it's this is especially true of tableau builders, although it's not a unique problem, of having the game end at the appropriate moment. So, again, Carl Chuddock, I think, is very good at this. 
one the goal in the way I explain Glory to Rome, for example, is that your goal is to break the game, and when you break it, you win. And there's any number of different ways to break it. Innovation has sometimes the same feel. If you get a ridiculous exploit going, you're either going to drive the game to its conclusion, or someone else is going to figure a way to turn the game on its ear. And you're not going to be in a position which sometimes, again, you get in through the ages, where it's like, okay, we're halfway through era two of three. Uh, Someone else has got this massive lead, and they're just churning out this engine over and over and over again. Mm. Well, we're stuck here for another hour. And that's one of the reasons why these shorter, more compelling games like Race, like the the works of Carl Chuddock, like the PAX games, the shorter ones, are really good because they're calibrated in such a way that they end just when someone's got that aha moment. Same thing with 51st State. I I personally find that the pacing of 51st State Master Set is pretty good. It's substantially longer than a lot of these other games. You're talking about 60 to 75 minutes rather than 45 to 60. But generally speaking, if somebody's got that killer engine, they're either going to drive the game to conclusion or someone's going to find a way to burn it down. Exactly. All right, that's all my points. I've got some games I want to talk about. Do you have any other points? No, let's talk about games. I was going to bring up Terraforming Mars just for the problem that I just said. Sometimes it's a game where you have, you can play, you're building a card tableau in front of you and there could be extra actions. And it's one of these games where staying in the round can give you a huge advantage. So you could do all these minor actions. And the game, you know, sort of feeds into that because you can either do one action or two actions when it when it becomes your turn. And so you just usually just want to do one in case, you know, you want to get two things done quickly and it keeps you in the round longer so you can do all these things at the end. But other than that, I enjoy Terraforming Mars and that's Terraforming Mars. I agree. Terraforming Mars is a deeply problematic game. Scythe. We already talked about Scythe not, maybe not being a, a, a tableau builder, but I believe it is. You have your little sheet in front of you and you're manipulating it how you want to give your troops special abilities or make, you know, resource collection better or, you know, getting more money or making certain turns faster. And it has the multiple paths to victory that we talked about. To me, the only way I've been thinking about this, the, the, the only real way in which Scythe has any similarities to a tableau builder is getting a factory card or arguably, and at this point, I still think it's a stretch your decision to deploy mechs and get additional special powers. Past that, I respect your right to call it a tableau builder. It's just not what I would say. Well, all these other games fall, not all the games I have in here, but uh, like Gaia Project will fall into that. Terra Mystica will fall into that. Uh, Hansa Teutonica, all these things. Yeah, and I disagree with all those I'm too. not saying you disagree. I'm not, I'm just saying they're, they all, they all have the same mechanism where you have this board in front of you and you're removing or, or manipulating pieces on the board to make your actions better or, or, or worse. Sure. And it's entirely possible that I'm just fetishizing cards that I've just got in my head that a tableau builder necessarily has to have cards and I'm not able to, to see past that. So, so a lot of these tableau builders are usually always driven by another mechanism, like either worker placement or action selection. There's a game that or drafting or drafting. Like in Seven Wonders. Anyway, Outlive is a game I played quite a bit last year. It's like this post-apocalyptic. You're moving these workers around and you're collecting these weapons and they're making the worker placement better and they're making your actions better and you're collecting all this stuff. And it was a uh, tableau builder that I really enjoyed. Lagrange is a game I talked about a few weeks ago that I couldn't uh, remember the name of with the siesta hats and I don't really remember Mark that game you know with the siesta hats and the and the multi-use cards you remember that game anyway, I think you I think you managed to spit out that it had donkeys as well yes donkeys anyway same sort of thing 
what I really like about Lagrange is the multi-use cards, because, you know, we hate multi-use cards. You can either, like we said, increase your donkeys, increase your production, you know, get yourself more recipes. It's a great little tableau builder. Get some games in. Do you have any games you want to talk about, Mark? My favorite tableau builder is Race for Galaxy. And I make no mistake, I am absolutely that gamer that thinks that game Y obsoletes game Z or something like that. Or I'm perfectly willing to play the second edition with minor rules tweaks. And I'm perfectly, well, not perfectly willing, but I end up buying the same game over and over and over again if it has minor improvements. But despite the fact that it is arguably the dominant form of hobbyist game, my favorite tableau builder is still the first one from 10 years ago, namely Race of the Galaxy. I have, I have not found a game that does it as well, that has the same level of trade-offs, the same level of variety, the same level of different opportunities to score points in a tighter, more compelling package. And it's kind of an anticlimax as a result because seeing all these other games come out, the, the, the newer ones, and thinking, yeah, this was done better 10 years ago, it's just, it's been very disappointing. Yes, yes. I'm going to go back to this, you know... Look, you feel the same way about drafting in fairy tale, I, right? I, I do, I do. I'm just... I'm just Which you. itself is arguably a tableau builder itself, but it's more of a drafting game. True. And while well, deck building, I think, is completely separate than tableau building. Agreed. Anyway, I'm going to press this point about it not being cards. Here's two more examples that don't fall into this, you know, card in front of your midplace. So there is Keyflower and Eclipse. I would, I would argue that both of those games are tableau builders. No, in, I don't think so. Just a moment, sir. Yeah, no, go, just go. a moment. Look, look, I, I've made up my mind, and now you can go explain okay. yourself. Well, in, in Eclipse, you're designing your ships. They're going to be t- completely different than everybody else's. Not only that... Oh, dear Lord, you're right. You have this huge tech system that's going to totally change You know how your turns work, and it's going to be different than everybody else. The techs don't sell me, but the ships do. And then in Keyflower, you're building this map out that you can go for definite strategies, right? Where you can get green workers, where you can, you know, mythic victory points. and So, you're, and so your, ta- your town is your tableau. Yes, oh, for sure. Your town is, even though other people can use it, you are, you're, you're, you're drafting certain pieces knowing that other people are going to use them, which in turn is going to get you the workers that they place on it, right? So that, because I was thinking later, well, it's like, oh, people are going to use your buildings, but you, that's part of the strategy is, is picking the, you know, the very popular buildings so you get more, more meeples. You've made a very compelling case. I'm not sure I'm ready to concede defeat. Gotcha. I think part of me, uh, I, the, the fault is mine. I don't have uh, an extremely rigorous a priori set of necessary and sufficient conditions for what constitutes a tableau builder. That's not how I define things. I define things by ostension. And one of the salient features that I look for might be purely cosmetic as opposed to functional. But I do, I do nonetheless think that in terms of the driving elements of gameplay, both in terms of action selection and in terms of the available actions you have to select, that Eclipse does not qualify, although you arguably your setup of ships is your tableau, and that's what drives a subset of your actions. So I might, I'm, I'm willing to concede for a subset of actions in Eclipse. It feels an awful lot like a tableau builder. And in terms of Keyflower, I think it's more just a worker placement game where the worker spots can be developed over the course of the game because you don't activate your tableau. It's just these are worker spots available for me. And that, to me, feels a little bit different, although maybe not for any good reason. You're a very persuasive man. Well, thank you. 
All right, so some really cool games that I really enjoy that are tableau builders. Nations. Love Nations. There is a game called Unfair, which wasn't a fantastic game because it had just way too much take that, but you're building an amusement park. Fantastic. St. Petersburg. Love me some St. Petersburg. And where's the other one? Steampunk Rally. It is very interesting because you're building this crazy, unique, like, vehicle that's racing along this track. And it's like an engine and you're feeding all this different kinds of energy into it, like wind energy or heat energy or electrical energy. And you're building this crazy engine. All of those parts I loved. It's just the fact that it was yet another so heads down that it was painful. And I love these two games, uh, Robot Rally and Steampunk Rally. Hey, they both have rally in the name. And not that people, you know, cheat or, or do anything, you know, not on purpose. It's just the fact that... When you have such a heads-down game like that, you think your engine works a certain way. And you could be wrong, and you just do what you think it does, and it goes on its way. And there's really nothing wrong with that. It's 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 a game, and, you know, big deal. Or, you know, you think you moved your robot right, and it really turned left. But that is, that is the essential part of the game, is when you make mistakes like that, that's part of the game. So when you have heads-down, and you're not really looking at what your opponent's doing, that kind of thing just irks me the wrong way. For me, there are, I think, two designers that really do very, very interesting things with tableau building that I'm always willing to try. Those are Carl Chuddick and Tom Lehman. The scope of their work, they've both returned to tableau builders again and again, but always in very compelling ways. I think my two favorite of those are Innovation and Race for the Galaxy, respectively, from those two designers. I really like PAX Renaissance, but I'm not as big a fan of the other PAX games, so I wouldn't put the Eklunds in quite the same category. And for me, it's about finding ways to have that all those virtues that we talked about in terms of table builders, but still having a lot of player interaction, which admittedly Race for the Galaxy doesn't do, but the quality of decision-making in terms of putting out cards in Race for the Galaxy is so good and introduces such interesting tension, it still elevates it to the very top tier as far as I'm concerned. So I'm looking through all these games that we talked about. Have we, have we seen any co-op games here? I'm going to make an argument that Sentinels of the Multiverse is a tableau builder. Some heroes feel like tableau builders. If you're if you're reliant on like for example if you're playing Wraith, Wraith feels a little bit like a tableau builder, but then there are lots of heroes that don't feel like tableau builders. There I think it really it, it, it's it's a field question depending on how they function. Agreed. Well, it's good to end on a note of agreement after such Well, there you go. rancorous discontent. I, I felt that the personal insults were unnecessary. Well, I just got to, you know, call it, you know, when you have terrible games like Considerable, con- considerable. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J U S T R O L L D A D I C E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. The only way people will find out about this show is if you tell them, because we don't advertise anywhere. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>